so glad you could join me again for our podcast. Always good to talk to you. Oh, always oh, great to be on. Well, you know, having been researchers in education policy for some time now, this is such an interesting, I mean, upsetting, but interesting um, time we're in right now. You know, Mike McShane said that we'll, we can spend our entire careers now doing before and after the pandemic, basically, <laughs> right? There's so much. But one of the things that emerged in the last week is that Harvard, in a, in a horrifying uh, sense of timing, released a paper, a research study, quote unquote, that basically said homeschooling should be illegal. I assume you've seen this? Uh, yes, <laughs> yes. I have been exposed to the whole thing. Yeah, I assume you had a reaction like mine, which, you know, again, terrible timing, but it's really easy, I think, to, to um, make statements and convince people about a group of people that no one, that you don't know, that you've never had direct contact with. And so you can just take these statements like 70% or 90% of homeschool parents do it for religious reasons. And there's a very high percent of homeschool parents who abuse their children. That's easier to believe when you're not a homeschooler yourself, right? Or you don't know anyone. But so much of that paper is factually incorrect that it's almost like, initially I avoided even talking about it because it's too frustrating. Well, you kind of had no choice but to talk about it because that's what everybody right now seems to be talking about, at least people in kind of school choice, educational freedom circles, uh, that's become the big news. I'm sure in part that is because we have basically everybody homeschooling right now. Um, mm -hmm. I don't know whether the timing of this Harvard article was, you know, it was intentional that they attack homeschooling at the same time everybody is essentially homeschooling. Um, because they have had this summit that they're going to hold in June. Right. Uh, that's been on the books for a while. The homeschooling community has known about it. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if that article was really to promote that summit. And so that would have been before the coronavirus. But the way everything was framed, and the fact they had an illustration where they misspelled arithmetic, which everybody enjoys because right, right. doesn't tell you a lot about a Harvard education, I guess. But... Um, uh, that they put this thing together and it was so clearly biased. You oh look God. at the lineup of people who are going to be in the summit. I don't know many of them, but uh, doing some research on them, I couldn't find any that had a, a clear pro-homeschool bias. There's uh, one guy, Milton Gaither, who has written some stuff on homeschooling that I've read. It wasn't, you know, extremely hostile the way that Harvard article was, or Harvard Magazine article, but it really makes you wonder how much they're bringing their bias in this to begin with. Uh, yeah, so they start by saying there's no way of knowing anything about the homeschool population, and then they make a bunch of assertions about the homeschool population, yeah. which is that it's almost all religious, and there's no way of knowing, which that bothers me because I used to work at the National Center for Education Statistics, and they do every other year a National Household Education Survey they do capture the homeschool data. It is a nationally representative survey that finds that the, though 16% uh, of homeschool parents say religion is most important, 34% say concern about the environment of other schools is the most important, and 17 is dissatisfaction with the academic in in instructor. So to say that 90% of them do it for religious reasons is annoying to me, but also they mentioned this book, Educated by Tara Westover. Have you read that book? I've only heard of it. I've One of many books I got to read. I read it. It was it was good. It was fascinating. It was about a girl who grew up in a crazy circumstance, 
it was crazy. Her father was mentally ill. Uh, he didn't let his kids go to school. Things like they had a car accident where the car went airborne and landed on its roof. And he made everybody get out, turn it over and, and keep going. Like he was that kind of a person. And she realized in her teen years that she hadn't been educated and she pursued it herself and ended up going to Harvard. And um, to say that that somehow represents the homeschool community, you know what I mean? It's like, take take a, an extreme situation, uh, like the some of the um, polygamist camps and say that represents all Mormons or that represents all people who go to church. They basically are taking this extreme situation and saying, this is what's happening in homeschool families. The kids are subject to abuse. It's not true. Yeah, so um, I ended up reading so there was the Harvard article. What was really the launching point for that was this, uh, I think her first name is Nancy, I should remember, or is it Elizabeth? Uh, who wrote this? Elizabeth. Arizona Law Review? Yeah, Bar Bartolet, Bart I'm not sure how she pronounced her name, but it's Bart Bartolet, Bartolet. Um, but anyway, so the launching point was that article, and I, I finished reading that article actually yesterday, last night. It's a long one. Yeah, it's long, about, it's 80 pages. Um, it's mainly takes most of its negative information about homeschooling, certainly from the Tara Westover book, and then from one or two other books, and I'll say right now I haven't read all those books, but it's sourced with, you know, the bad stuff really comes from one or two sources, and what's really striking is what, what, what you said, which is that it constantly says that you, it's very hard to get accurate, comprehensive information about homeschoolers, in part because many places don't track homeschoolers very rigorously, and that, you know, that's probably more or less true depending on where you are. Um, but it constantly says, so it's hard to get data, but then says with, with very, <laughs> with almost certainty, we know that there's rampant abuse in this sector after they say we can't get that information. So it's got to be one or the other. Now, what I do find uh, I'm not ex uh, like totally outraged by this because I understand how people would say, how do we know that we are making sure that kids uh, who are supposedly being homeschooled aren't being abused? And I can understand the impetus to say, we would really like to be able to at least check on the welfare of kids. Um, but to then go to these extreme leaps that, well, because we know there's been some abuse, it must be rampant, is sort of outrageous, especially when one of your major complaints is, we need more research and we don't have enough data. It's got to be one or the others. And that suggests there's an ax to grind. I also say a little bit of a surprise is at the end of that law review article, which is you know, almost entirely about homeschooling, there's also a little attack on private schools. Saying we, we probably also need to take a look at private schools, even though, you know, at least they're adults there and they're more regulated, but, you know, they could be bad too. And all of it's bad. And on set aside the abuse, the other major complaint is it's all bad because it's not teaching whatever it is, the majority or however you decide the public, whatever constitutes public kids aren't learning whatever it is the public thinks they need to learn and therefore they're sheltered and that's just inherently dangerous for our democracy and that is a an assertion that needs to be you know massively unpacked but they don't do it they just make the assertion of anybody getting anything other than a public school education is probably uh, being sheltered 
and is probably kind of a hermit and is probably dangerous for democracy. And those are accusations that are, I mean, huge, <laughs> and they don't do anything to really substantiate. Well, as I mentioned before, probably on this podcast, so if you've heard this before, I apologize. I homeschooled one of my kids. I homeschooled one of my kids for one year for reasons, it was academic reasons, 100%. Um, and, and this, I'm not going to be labored. I'm not going to get much more time to this law review article, but it says the history of homeschooling is that it really exploded because of this conservative Christian movement that rejected normal, you know, many of the views of the public schools and so on. And that's why it's so big right now. And what I would say to that is it's missing a huge uh, factor in the explosion of homeschooling, which is like that it's possible now. So when I started, when I homeschooled my child, it was when um, this new organization called K12.com had launched. It had launched homeschool curriculum. I never would have considered homeschooling without that. And so basically I was like, oh, if I did want homeschool, I don't have to go out and put together a thing and meet with groups or do it. I can just use K12.com and he can log in and sets up his curriculum, tracks his progress. He gets grades, and but I'm directing it. And I'm not going to say I did a great job. It was like 16 years ago. We didn't know a job. I wouldn't have done it without that. So we fast forward to today. Now every parent is either homeschooling or doing no schooling. And the reason that we have some kids learning is because we have the technology. And so to me, the reason that homeschooling has grown is like you had kids even before this, obviously, who were very involved in athletics and the public school didn't work for them. Kids who were bullied in the public school didn't work for them. There's so many reasons, academic reasons, where parents are like, oh, well, you know, we, we can learn online now. I don't have to be a parent who sets up their own homeschooling curriculum. So that, I think, is why it's gotten so big. And so here we are today, and everyone's trying it. Yeah. Well, definitely technology helped. You know, a lot of the beginning of this was sort of left-wing people who are like, the public schools aren't progressive enough and their indoctrination. And even if you know, uh, a very large percentage, even a vast majority of homeschoolers, even if they were all religious, that doesn't mean that they're sort of all sort of dangerous uh, religious zealots the way they are portrayed in both the Harvard article and especially in the Law Review article of, you know, they, they, they're somehow like a cult and they want to keep everybody on their compounds, even people who are religious are often doing it, yes, because they want religion in their education, but because they don't feel the educational component of religious private schools is good enough, or that the public schools don't have a good enough educational set aside the religion. And so even if religion is part of it, that doesn't mean that the quality of the education isn't either one factor or even the predominant factor, but all that gets shoved aside. And then, the, uh, like I said, the, sort of the one thing I, I'm sympathetic to is this idea of, well, we do worry that you could hide kids from abuse in, in homeschooling. Uh, and so I looked up today, you know, there was in 2004, the U.S. Department of Education put out that research synthesis by Carol Shakeshaft, um, which people don't talk about very much, but 10% uh, of students, uh, and these are Primarily, from what I saw, the research she drew upon was about public schools. I don't think only, but I think primarily. 10% uh, of students have been sexually abused or harassed, uh, for the most part, in public schools. Yeah. So to say, well, there could be a problem with homeschooling, therefore it should not be allowed, and that's ultimately what uh, Professor Bartlet is saying, or at least only in extreme circumstance should be allowed, 
you got to see the system they may be going into and say, what about all the problems there? It's not as simple as homeschooling could be terrible and we know everything else is great. I would say, like Missouri, we have no state level um, directives. They're leaving it to districts. Other districts are leaving it to schools. Schools are kind of leaving it to teachers, and teachers are kind of relying on parents to, to pick it up, you know, and, and educate their kids for, the, for while we're shut down. Parents are probably looking at teachers, and teachers are probably looking at schools. I mean, they're probably looking up for direction, but for the most part, it's coming down to the hands of parents. And, you know, we're, um, you know, re reading today about parents who've discovered some very troubling things in doing this. Like, some parents in an article I was reading have found out their, their kids have learning disabilities that they didn't know of, that it was the end of kindergarten and their child didn't know the ABCs. You know, they're finding things that way. And they're also finding out kids who were, um, who, uh, were, whose parents were told they had behavioral problems actually just could work a lot faster than they were working. They were a little bored finding the environment. So parents are really getting this huge inside look at what happens in their child's education all of a sudden. So I think what I hope a positive that comes out of this is that schools will acknowledge the parental input that they say they want, but they don't really, really want. Yeah. Um, well, and if parents are discovering that there's a lot of things they don't really like that happening in their schools, uh, one result may be that schools want even less to share with parents because they know what happens when they see, you know, they see under the hood and they realize, well, this engine's kind of broken and uh, there's oil all over the place. Um, and so we'll see. Uh, I, you know, I'm sure people always want to know, well, what do you think education is going to look like in a year or two years after all this? I, I think kind of on the margins, people who are sort of thinking about homeschooling, some of them will probably go to that because they'll see that technology enables it. I think that like the um, uh, example you gave of some kids are actually doing a lot better because they can actually work faster and they don't have to put up with the distractions of misbehaving kids or taking roles or handing in papers. There'd be a lot of by those kids who are, whose parents say, why don't we do this online and let them move a lot faster. And then we can always get the supplemental in person. We could take classes somewhere. You know, there are all sorts of different places you can go. I mean, physical places when we're allowed to go to physical places where you can get instruction. They'll do a lot more of that, but they'll realize education can be a lot faster and a lot more efficient if you take control of it. On the flip side, people are getting a very strange assessment or experience with homeschooling where it is really all focused on your computer, for the, unless you can do stuff at home. And there's so much human interaction for regular homeschoolers that they're not getting that. I also worry some people are going to say, this is homeschooling? This is terrible. I don't yeah. like just sitting in front of a computer and ruining my eyesight. I can't eat any more carrots than I've already eaten to try and keep <laughs> those eyes going. Um, my kids are, you know, they're going a little nuts, plus they get too much screen time with video games. So there's also going to be the problem of people who think this is what homeschooling is and that it's awful. Um, and so I don't know how that ends up balancing out. Uh, and it'll be interesting to see. My, my guess is you'll have some uptick in homeschoolers, but it's not going to be massive. And a lot of people are just going to be glad to get back with other human beings for a while. Absolutely. I mean, my hope is as a positive person that this um, creates more respect for teachers. I think it is. I think people realize how hard a job it must be to teach now and that uh, on the part of parents and more respect for parents on the part of teachers when like they had to turn the reins over and like to, to actually respect parents and their choices a little bit more. 
But I also am concerned that there's going to be so much blame to go around. So when the kids get back to school, teachers, there's going to be a lot of blame to say, it's not my fault. The parents didn't do anything. The kids, you know, they lost right. all this time. Um, I assume there'll be blame from parents on, towards um, the schools because a lot of schools aren't doing anything. And uh, blame from schools to districts and all up the line. And, you know, I'm concerned that that's going to be a result and that that's what we're going to talk about in the fall because um, while there are some good positive things come out of this, I think there's also going to be a lot of blame to go around. Yeah, well, I think that, and, and I hope districts are doing this, they're going to have to prepare to be able to quickly transition from you know, we're doing these lessons in person right now, but there could be an outbreak in the school tomorrow that we find out about. Everybody has to go online. I think they're probably going to have to develop sort of, I don't want to say parallel, because they don't have to be parallel, but they're going to have to take lessons, prepare them to deliver them in person, but also have the online component ready to go. I don't know that, I mean, I'm not an expert pedagogue or anything like that. I don't want to tell teachers how to do their jobs. But I would imagine, because this is what I've been seeing, there are ways that you're, you might already be doing your lesson on PowerPoint, which at least makes it something quickly transferable to, to go online. You can record your lessons online. Um, and so I think that schools and districts can be prepared to do that. Missouri um, state adequacy funding is about $6,800 per student. You know, what if, you, what if they gave that district half of it still, 3400 mm -hmm. and gave parents 3400 or maybe $500 a month for every month that they can, that they choose this online option. Um, and then they could, you know, if the district's not putting stuff together, they could look for other ways to educate their child that costs money or look for good programs like Florida Virtual and spend it on that. But we still have a problem of the vast majority of Americans, their experience and their understanding of what education is, is it's a public school. And um, the public schools, uh, and I should say, you know, there are lots of perfectly great, fine public schools. Public schooling, uh, I have a lot of problems with the system, especially how it's uh, incapable of coping with minority thought and sometimes marginalized different groups of people. But in terms of delivering education, there are going to be plenty of public schools that do a perfectly fine job. This is not a condemnation of public schooling, as in it's a bad place. Every public school is a bad place to get an education. But it is, we are seeing a problem with the system of everybody's given the same brick and mortar model, often at very big scale, and it's hard to move that when things change. Um, I, I don't actually live in Fairfax County, Virginia. I am next to Fairfax County, Virginia, but it's a very wealthy county. I think it's still one of the top 10 uh, counties in the country for per capita income, but it's a huge district. Uh, and they, they, even when the COVID-19 stuff was just starting, they said, you know what, we're going to take three days. We're not closing because of uh, a fear of people communicating the disease, but we see that come down the road. So we're going to close for a few days just to plan out how we're going to cope with this thing. And you said, well, that's pretty good forethought. Um, well, so they, everybody suddenly shuts down because you may remember everything happened really fast. Um, and, and so I don't know whether they did their planning days or not. But they, I think they either moved their spring break or they had already had a budget in, but you thought, okay, they're ready because it's basically now three weeks after this started that they're going to reopen. 
they have massive technology problems. They have people Zoom bombing after everybody knew about Zoom bombing. They're working with Blackboard and they're having trouble with Blackboard. I just saw or heard this morning that they have fired their chief technology officer. Um, and so Fairfax County is you know, supposed to be a very good public school system, but it's huge. It almost certainly couldn't move really quickly. It has a very big bureaucracy. And even though it does well, has a lot of money, very well staffed. It just couldn't handle this the way smaller schools and smaller school districts seem to have been doing it. So it, it may sort of typify uh, that it's really hard to move a gigantic organization and quickly completely change how it does business. Uh, and we're going to need to move away from that. Now the smallest level of organization, I guess you'd say, in education is the family. You'll want to be able to give them more power. You may want to give individual schools more power. You may want to break up big school districts. I mean, there's a lot we got to learn because we don't know how this is all going to end up. Um, but what we're seeing is big is not always better, I think. Yeah. Well, so there's a group at University of Washington who's tracking what districts' responses are and categorizing them, and they're doing a lot of work there. And they also are including charter schools in there. And their initial findings are not at all surprising. But charter schools are the ones that pivoted fastest, who got the kids online fastest. They're more likely to do synchronous learning, more likely to uh, track progress. And sort of like the, the um, better standards that we're seeing emerge, the better practices. And, of course, that's true because the decision-making is at the school-building level. So they have flexibility and autonomy, and uh, they are not subject to all the same rules and regulations as a traditional public school district, so they're able to pivot faster. So I do hope that that um, encourages more of that model of giving autonomy to the school level and letting schools innovate and letting parents pick between them. Yeah, well, and there's been research on uh, public schools, charter schools, private schools, but you know, within traditional public schools where the principals have more authority and autonomy those schools tend to do better because they can move quickly to change things when their circumstances change. So that's something we saw before the coronavirus. And I do hope we see a lot of it. But, you know, you all, we always see these pushes to, well, we need to consolidate, to get rid of these small districts because, you know, we got to get a scale so we're more efficient, which is not a whole lot of research that suggests they actually become more efficient. Um, and, but there's always this sort of inclination because I think people think first, well, if it's bigger, it can provide more stuff. And why should we have three superintendents when we could just have one with that save us money? And they don't think of how hard it is to move the Titanic versus to move your speedboat. Um, they just think, well, we'll save money because we won't be duplicating things. And it's just not often how things work. But even after this COVID-19 uh, crisis, it's still going to be hard, I think, to move people's immediate reaction when they hear, well, we could get efficiencies by consolidating to say, wait, that's not a good idea because now we've seen with coronavirus that it's better to be small and nimble. So we're going to keep having to fight that and point that out. I think we're going to see a lot of variation. I spoke to a Kansas City public school teacher yesterday who teaches Algebra 2 at a high school, and he's trying really hard. He's motivated, Teach for America. Like He's really concerned about his kids for sure doing his best, letting them do TikTok videos, all kinds of stuff. But he is not able, like there's about 30% of his kids that he's not even able to reach. Like they're not logging in. He can't, he's trying to put his phone number in. Like we're losing a whole bunch of kids in this experience. So 
guess what we're learning is everybody and every place are different and you kind of need to adjust to that. And it's not something that public schools in particular are really good at. And it's probably not something that any given private school is good at. But when you have a system with a whole lot of different options, then you can find the ones that are good at that particular thing. So there, you talk about K-12, you know, K-12 now, of course, runs lots of online schools. You've got other online charter schools and places like that. Now you can go to those places. Well, some places won't let you do it. Some states are like, no, you can't transfer it. But you can go to them and say, this is your area. We're all online now. You've been doing it for a long time. What can we learn? And that's good. You want a system that has all those sorts of options for many reasons. But one of them is when something goes wrong with the predominant option, you want somebody who tried out the mm -hmm. thing you're about to do. Yeah, I know Florida is giving $200 to every teacher who completes uh, virtual teacher training, which I think is a great idea. I mean, I would think that they would be looking for it anyway, but they get a $200 stipend. But just encouraging teachers to get trained on it if they don't know how to do it, you know, figure it out. Um, I don't know. I'm a, I'm not a fan of 100% online, though, for sure. And I, kids need to get out and they need to be with each other. And I'm sure many of them are looking forward to that. Lots of parents I know are looking forward to it. But I just think, I guess the takeaway from this conversation is um, personalized learning, right? We got to personalize learning for everyone and uh, have create a system that allows that to, to function. Yeah, we want as much flexibility and um, ability to innovate and the ability to specialize as we can get. Uh, I think you're absolutely right. Why most people do not want all their education to be online, but I sure am glad we've had people and organizations that have focused on online education yeah. who have been there to be able to say, you may not all like this, but we all have to kind of do it now. Mm -hmm. And here's stuff that, here, here's advice on how to do it. There are already online uh, resources that you can use. It's really been useful to have the homeschooling community to not just say, here are resources you can use, but here's what you can expect. First, it's not going to be easy. It's okay if your kids get upset not to keep learning because that's what happens. You should know ahead of time. They're not going to spend nearly as much time doing school stuff as they do when they're in school. It was great that those people exist, even if homeschooling isn't what most of us want to do. So it's the system we need to be thinking about and personalized learning, flexibility, lots of options, lots of innovation. That's what we want. And a system where we fund one type of school, almost predominantly, is kind of the worst way to get what we need. Well, maybe this will end that. Well, well, it'll maybe move us a little in the right direction. Yeah, maybe we'll move us in the right direction a little bit. Yeah. I don't want to be too optimistic. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for listening to the Show Me Institute podcast. Find more at showmeinstitute.org.